Welcome to another episode of Berean's Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. Hey, good morning, faith family. I want to welcome those that are gathered in Lakeville and in our sanctuary service. Invite all of you, if you would, to turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We started a series last week called Victorious. Uh, we're going through the book of Revelation, and, and as you know, that's uh, uh, an intimidating book for a lot of people. It's also a very fascinating book uh, for a lot of people. And I don't typically do this, but I would encourage you, if you were not here last week, uh, to go back and to listen to that message. Uh, we did lay kind of a lot of foundation for the book because it is different uh, than a lot of other books in the Bible. And so uh, if you miss that, go back and you can get caught up on some of those things. Uh, I, would, I think that would be helpful for you. But just as a quick review, uh, we talked about last week in, in terms of the book of Revelation, understanding this, uh, that the book of Revelation is not intended to predict the end. That's most of what people think about when they think about the book of Revelation. But I gave you 2,000 years worth of example. It was a really long sermon, uh, of examples how people have ended up looking like crazy people because of this, but that's not what the book is for. The book of Revelation is actually intended to help you persevere to the end. That's what the book is for. It's about your life. It's about our life. It's about the church persevering to the end. We talked about things like this, that the book of Revelation is intended to be known. Uh, God's not being mysterious. Uh, he's not, uh, he didn't give some secret code or secret sauce to figure out. He wants you to know something. And sure, the, the book of Revelation is difficult, the genre, its references to the Old Testament that we don't often catch. It can be hard, but it's meant to be known. It's also meant to be seen. It is full of symbols. It's a picture book. Uh, it's meant for you to see. And, and so you get all these different images throughout the book. It's meant to be applied. That is, it's about your real life, practical application, things that you are to do. And more than anything, it's all about Jesus. Not dragons, not beasts, Jesus. He is the main uh, person, the main character in the book. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And there is no text more obvious than the one we're going to look at this morning. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. If you are able to stand in all of our locations, would you please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. He was clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. His hairs were like white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. Let's pray together, faith family. Father, thanks for this time to gather together and to uh, now hear your word. I pray that I would be faithful to it, um, that um, we wouldn't be here just to have an entertaining talk. We want to hear from you. Uh, This matters, and I pray that this truth this morning would be just a great hope and encouragement for us as we live our life. So Holy Spirit, come and guide us into truth. In Jesus, may you be glorified in all things, and we pray it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. 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 Please be seated. Surrender nuts. Those were the famous words of General Anthony McAuliffe. The year was 1944. World War II was in full swing. McAuliffe was the general of the 101st Airborne Screaming Eagles, my hometown, baby. He was the general in what would be known as the Battle of the Bulge. It was the Germans' last-ditch effort to overtake the U.S. forces. They sent tanks and they sent troops to what they perceived was the weakest part of the Allied lines. And it was true, the U.S. forces were completely surrounded, outmanned, outgunned, running out of food, running out of ammunition, running out of medical supplies. On top of all that, it was the coldest winter on record. Defeat, by at least all physical appearances, seemed inevitable. It's why on December 22nd, three days before Christmas, the Germans sent four men across enemy lines with a letter demanding the immediate surrender of the U.S. forces. Upon hearing this letter read... General McAuliffe gave his firm and sophisticated response. Nuts! Germans to the north, Germans to the south, Germans to the east, Germans to the west, you're nuts if you think we're going to surrender. Faith family, why would someone say something like that? Particularly given the fact that all the signs pointed to defeat. Maybe he was nuts. Or maybe he knew something. I don't know, like, that the U.S. Army's 4th Armored Division was on the way. Tanks, baby. 
Add to that the economic resources of the U.S. and the air supremacy. Here's the point. General McAuliffe was able to look into his present situation and know, even though there is actually a war raging, victory is not in doubt. And so he was able to stare the demand of surrender in the eyes and say, nuts! Faith family, have you ever had someone or something on your side that gave you confidence in difficulty? Maybe for you, you were bullied at school, but you weren't afraid because you had a big brother that would stand with you. (laughs) Maybe you went through a time of grieving, but you didn't give in because you had the support of some amazing friends at your side. Maybe you were facing a very serious surgery, but you weren't afraid because you had the best medical team on your side. I heard this said on the TV just this past week, I I had Monday night football playing. The Saints were down by two. There's a few seconds left to go in the game. They, They march, if you watch the game, they march the field and they kick the winning field goal. Afterwards, they're interviewing the kicker and he says something like, yeah, victory was never in doubt. And the reporter said, well, why were you so confident that you were going to win? And this is what he said, and I quote, because we have Drew Brees on our team. The point, faith family, is we all know that when you've got the right person on your side, nothing can keep you down. Or I'll say it this way, notice it here, that if you already know you will win, it's easier to persevere to the end, amen? If victory is never in doubt, then it's easy to persevere and be confident. Lakeville Sanctuary, everybody look right here. If that's true on the playground, if that's true in the hospital room, if that's true on the football field, then how much more you as a child of God ought to live with confidence every day? Paul says in Romans 8, what then shall we say to these things? Y'all say this with me. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What can bring, who can bring charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, or you could insert nuts. In all things, say it, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When you got the right person on your side, nothing keeps you down. That is exactly, exactly what we see here in Revelation chapter 1. Now, why would this truth, why would this encouragement be needed? Verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, 
and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. At the writing of this letter, you need to understand that the apostle John is an old man. He's devoted his life to Jesus. And because of his devotion to Jesus, that has cost him dearly. He has been banished by Rome to a remote island on the Aegean Sea. This is no uh, vacation to Maui. This is, if I could bring it into today's time, this is the modern-day equivalent of Alcatraz. He's been banished. This is where Rome would dump all their prisoners. He's been isolated from the culture. He's been removed from civilization. He's a prisoner. And why is he there? Verse 9. On account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, John has been excommunicated from the culture because of his loyalty to Christ. Look here, faith family. His faith put him on an island, literally. And John is not the only one going through tribulation. In fact, it's why he says to the churches, which he mentions in verse 11, that he's partners with them in tribulation. That word partner is where we get our word fellowship that we use for everything in the church. Everything is fellowship. It's actually partnership. We fellowship together in suffering, tribulation. Look at what he says to the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2.9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Look at what he says of the church of Pergamum in verse 13. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. To the church at Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. In other words, we know from the text of Scripture that this is written in a context of tribulation. But I want to dig down a little deeper, not just from the text of Scripture, but the facts of history. You see, John is writing this in the mid-90s A.D. That puts us in a historical time frame that gives us a lot of insight here. There were in the first three centuries of the Christian movement ten major waves of persecution. Some were empire-wide, some were more localized. The first wave happened under an emperor by the name of Nero, around 54 to 68 AD. Nero was a bad, bad man. He killed his wife and his mother. In 64 AD, when a, um, a fire engulfed Rome, uh, everybody blamed him. And like the good politician he was, he blamed somebody else. And guess who he blamed? Christians. They don't worship Roman gods. And so the gods are getting back at us for these Christians. And hundreds of them were tortured and killed. The Apostle Paul being one of them. The second wave happened under an emperor by the name of Domitian. Don't worry, I'm not going through all ten waves. This second wave gets us to the book of Revelation. Domitian, the dates are roughly 81 to 96 AD. He's as bad as Nero. This guy has his brother Fredo killed. 
Okay, that's the godfather. But he did have his brother killed. His brother wasn't named Fredo, but he had him killed. He was just as evil as Nero, but he did something that was actually different than, than Nero. He made a law that not only did you have to worship Roman gods, you had to worship the emperor. Guess why? Because he said the emperor was a god. And so this thing took place in the culture called emperor worship. And if you didn't worship the emperor, well, tribulation. Christians, of course, are very clear according to the word of God. You're to have no other God above God. And so they wouldn't bow. And it is not my intention this morning to be graphic just for the sake of being graphic, but I want you to have full well an understanding of what John is dealing with. Under this man's reign, Christians were tied to horses and the horses made to run in opposite directions, ripping their limbs apart, lit on fire to illuminate the night, holes drilled in their head and lead poured inside, thrown to the lions. I'm not trying to just be graphic, I'm tr I want you to know that when John says we are partners in tribulation, he means it. The point? From the text of Scripture and the facts of history, here's what we know. The book of Revelation was written during great tribulation. Now, this is my, not my intent to make a dig at anybody. Please don't misunderstand here. But what I want to say is if you think tribulation is just a period of seven years at the end of history, you do not understand the Bible or church history. Tribulation, my dear friend, is not just about the future people of God. It is about for all the people of God in every age. Jesus said in John 16, very clear, in this world you will have, say it, tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome. I am victorious over the world. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. In Acts 14.22, Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulation is a part of this life, and particularly for Christians. Now, when you start talking about this kind of tribulation, it gets uncomfortable for us as Americans, because let's be honest, generally speaking, we've not had to go through anything like that. Amen? And we should praise God for that. Okay? It's not as though, well, I hope this happens. No, that's not the point. The point is, even if you don't go through what they went through, are you going through anything because of your faith? Have you ever received any kind of pushback because of your faith in Jesus? I, I've said this before on several different occasions in other sermons. If you're not being persecuted for Jesus at some level, then there's not enough Jesus in you to persecute. It is, it is an impossible scenario to think you could go through life as a Christian following Jesus and there never be a rub. That you would never end up on an island in some way. Have you ever experienced that in your family? Some of you have. What about with certain friends? What about with 
co-workers? Have you ever been verbally accused of something? Well, you're just anti... Fill in the blank. You may not go through what they went through, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you'll go through something. So then let me ask you this. Are you with me this morning, faith family? If Jesus was enough to get them through that, is he not enough to get you through what you're going through? tribulation, suffering. Some of you are going through, maybe it's not as a result of your faith, but it's a a general sense of suffering. Some of you have lost a job. Some of you are going through difficulty in your marriage or family. Some of you are going through tribulation. Is Jesus enough? John and these churches are facing tribulation. So what do you say to people who are suffering like this? Do you give them a sermon on how to manage their money? Do you tell them who to vote for in the upcoming Roman election? I know you give them five ways to restore intimacy in their marriage. Or do you give them something else? Like this. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is one of the most glorious visions of Jesus in the Bible. Now, keep in mind, faith family, remember I told you last week this is apocalyptic genre? That is, this is symbolism. This is a literal Jesus. These are literal attributes that he has, but they are pictured in symbolic ways. And I made a promise to you last week that I would do my best to make this simple because, again, this can be very intimidating when you're not used to this kind of symbolism. And so even if you don't even know what these symbols mean, all you have to do is step back and ask a few questions and you'll get the point. For instance, is Jesus seen here as weak or powerful? Is he seen mild or mighty? Is he boring or captivating? Is he tame or is he terrifying? In other words, just a few questions. You don't even have to know what all the symbols mean and you still get the message. He is someone to behold. He is breathtaking. He is captivating. He is so all-consuming that John falls down as though dead. That's the point. Now, of course, when you see what these symbols mean, it will make that point all the more clear. Jesus is seen here as the one that has all authority. He has a long robe with a golden sash. Some say this refers to the priestly clothing of the Old Testament, and that could be true. I don't think that fits the context here. You see, in the ancient Near East, the longer the robe a king wore, the more authority the king had. Point, Jesus' robe goes all the way to his feet. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He has all authority. He is the one that is full deity. He has white 
hair. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is old. Oh, Jesus, you've aged quite a bit since the resurrection. No, that's not the point. This imagery goes back to Daniel 7, verse 9. Look at it here. I looked and the thrones were placed and the ancient of days, which is God, if you study this chapter, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. In other words, the association here is Jesus with the ancient of days. The point, he is God. He is divine. He is the eternal one. He also sees in totality. His eyes are like flaming fire. His look is piercing. There is nothing hidden from his sight. He is holy and mighty. His feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Some take this to mean his purity or holiness. That is of refined metal. Others take this to refer to his mightiness in battle. That is, he's got feet of bronze to stomp his enemies. My response, yes, because he is holy of all holies and he is mighty God. And when he speaks, oh, brother, sister, he speaks with authority. His voice is like roaring water. Have you ever stood under a waterfall and just been absolutely overwhelmed with the noise? You tried to talk to somebody next to you and you couldn't even hear a word because all you could hear was the roar of the water. And when he speaks, what comes out of his mouth is a two-edged sword. It has a dual purpose. It comforts and it convicts. It judges and it brings joy. It hurts and it heals. And this Jesus radiates with glory. Oh, his face, it's shining like the sun. It's blinding. It's captivating. It's overwhelming. It's consuming. And at this point, John's had enough. Who can behold such glory? And he falls down as though dead. It reminds me of Isaiah. You remember in Isaiah 6, he sees a glimpse of the glory of God and the angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah's response is not like, That's so neat. <laughs> His response is, I'm undone. I'm undone. Berean, behold your king. Do you know who you're dealing with? And this majestic, holy, radiating of glory king sees the one that he loves as though dead and he reaches down with compassion and grace and he touches him on the shoulder and he says, don't be afraid. Do you hear the compassion? Fear not. There's more I want you to see of me. I'm the one that has existed for all eternity. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There is nothing before Jesus and there will be nothing after him. And he has won the final and ultimate victory for he died in faith family. He is now alive forevermore. And do you know what he holds the keys to? He holds the keys to death 
and Hades in his hands. What a vision of our risen king. Behold him this morning. See him in this vision as John sees and be overwhelmed. Do you want to know what terrifies me? Please, please, Lakeville Sanctuary, everybody, what terrifies me is the idea that you're going to be neutral today. I tell you this, if you see what John saw, you'll do what John did. And you will fall on your face today, overwhelmed in the glory of Jesus. Reminds me of Chronicles of Narnia, um, Lucy who represents humanity and, and Aslan who represents Jesus. They, they, they've been away for a while and they, they, they come together and, and Lucy runs up to Aslan and hugs him and embraces him and, and then she steps back and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, no child, you're older. And she says, you mean to tell me you're not bigger? And Aslan says, no but every year you get older, you'll find me bigger. Oh, would that be true of us? Some of you are here today and you've been professing Christians for how long? Is he bigger to you now? It doesn't mean that he got bigger. It's that your vision, your your being captivated by him has gotten bigger. Oh, I pray that God would tear down our vision of him and build it up bigger. Now, how do these things fit together? Are you with me, faith family? Well, what's clear from the text is the tribulation of God's people. Verse 9 through 11, John and the churches. What's also clear is this vision of God's Son, verses 12 through 18. But the question is, how do these two things relate? Or what is the main point of the passage? What's the main thing trying to be communicated? Verse 13. And in the midst of the, say it, lampstands. Who are the lampstands? Some of you are getting ahead of me, okay? Verse 20, we read it earlier. And the seven lampstands are the, say it, seven churches. What's the point? The churches are facing tribulation. We've seen a vision of God's Son. And what is He doing? He is standing in the midst of the lampstands. That is to say this, Jesus is on the side of His bride. Jesus stands with His people. And that is all the motivation you need in tribulation to stay faithful to the mission. Amen? All you need to know is you don't have to give up. You don't have to lack confidence. You don't have to be afraid because Jesus stands with his church. 
It goes like this. I know you're taking it on the chin. I know Rome has turned up the heat. I know you're facing tribulation. John, I know that you're isolated. You will soon be killed. Churches of Asia Minor, I know that you're facing persecution for these are the things that will soon take place. Church at Berean, I know that even as you live out your faith, it's going to cost you, but don't lose heart. Here's why. Because even though we are partners in tribulation, we are partners in the kingdom. And guess, oh yeah, get excited, because I'm already excited for you. Guess who is the king of that kingdom that we belong to? The one who has all authority. Domitian, Rome, President of the United States are nothing compared to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen, little girl. With full deity. If God is on your side, who can be against you? The one who sees with totality. Christian, there's nothing happening to you right now that is outside of his sight. You may feel forsaken, but you are not forgotten. He is holy and he speaks with authority and he radiates with glory and he's existed for eternity and he's won the forever and final victory over the grave that Jesus stands with you. That's the vision. That, can, can you imagine what this does to John, what this does to the churches? I know you're going through tribulation, but I'm in the midst of you. I'm in the midst of you. I've not forsaken you. You're not alone. You don't have to fight. I fight for you. And you will never, ever be forsaken. He is with his church. He will build his church. And there ain't a thing hell can do about it. So don't be afraid, John. Don't be afraid, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Brian, Hosanna, Eaglebrook, Grace, River Valley, all the churches in the South Metro. Don't give up. Jesus stands with you. Like the lyrics of one of my favorite hymns by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to him abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go in this mortal life also, because the body they may kill, but his truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's Revelation chapter 1. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Sermon ain't over. <laughs> I just wanted you to say Amen, all right? Here's the point of the text. You're like, why didn't you just start here? It would have been a lot shorter, but it would have been nearly as fun. 
This is, I told you, don't be intimidated by revelation. Yes, it's hard, but the truth is simple to understand. Here's the point. Our motivation for enduring the mission, even in tribulation, is a clear vision of our victorious king. That's Revelation 1. Our motivation, keep going. Don't you stop. Don't you quit. Man, you keep going in the mission. Even though you're going to face opposition and tribulation and isolation on islands, but when you've got a clear vision of who's on your side, ain't nothing going to keep you down. So what does this mean for us? Number one, faith family, I, I pray today that we will renew our passion for Jesus. As I said earlier, see what John saw and then do what John did. Fall on your face. We're Norwegians. We don't fall on our face. We <laughs> will smile. I'd love to see the glory of Jesus make some of y'all unsophisticated. You don't even know what to do with yourself. You don't even know if you're Baptist anymore. But seriously, I'm using a little sarcasm there, but it terrifies me to think that we'll leave today and just be like, yeah, that's that pretty neat. That's encouraging. Fall on your face. Go back and read this alone and get on your face before him and behold the glory of your king. I want your affections for him stirred and renewed. I don't want you to be neutral. You can't be neutral. If you walk out of here neutral, you didn't see Jesus. Secondly, is refuse to surrender to fear. Rome has nothing on Jesus. Domitian who? They're Psalm 2, the nation's rage. And the God in heaven laughs. Really? That's the best you got. No power in this world comes close to the power of our king. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Don't fear God. Don't fear man. Fear God. Don't fear man. Fear God. Yes, you may end up on an island. You may not end up on an island geographically, but you'll end up on an island relationally because of your testimony of Jesus. Don't be afraid. Don't be a jerk either, but don't be afraid to stand firm and be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, is regain your focus on the mission. Regain your focus on the mission. All of this is happening to John and to these churches because they are witnesses. They have a testimony and they're not afraid. And so I want to remind you that every day is a day you're on mission. Every day is a day you're on mission and you have nothing to be afraid of. And you need to refocus your life on the fact that you have a calling on it. And that is to testify to Jesus and the good news of the gospel everywhere you go. Don't lose sight of that, faith family. When Oliver Cromwell reigned over England in the 1600s, there was a, 
a young soldier that was sentenced to execution. The soldier's fiance ran up to Cromwell and begged and pleaded for him to let her fiance go, but Cromwell refused. The man was to be executed when the curfew bell sounded. And the time came for the sexton of the church to ring the bell, and when he did, there was no sound. The woman had climbed inside the tower and wrapped herself around the clapper so it wouldn't hit the bell. And with every pull of that rope, her body was smashed. Finally, the sexton of the church stopped. The woman climbed down. Her body was bloodied, bruised. Cromwell looked at her, and he called off the execution. A poet later described that moment like this. At his feet, she told her story, showed her hands all bruised and torn, and her sweet young face still haggard with the anguish it had worn touched his heart with sudden pity, lit his eyes with misty light. Go! Your lover lives, said Cromwell. Curfew will not ring tonight. My dear Christian, no matter how hard this road may be, no matter how intense the suffering may get, no matter the tribulation you may be called to endure, listen, because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done for you, be assured of this, curfew will not ring tonight. You are victorious. You are victorious. Jesus is with you. So when that serpent comes to what he perceives is your weakest point and demands your immediate surrender, you look at him and tell him that he's Nuts! And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for Revelation chapter 1. What an encouragement to know that in our suffering and in our tribulation, our glorious King stands with us. If God is for us, who could be against us? I don't know what everybody in this place and in our locations are going through today, but I pray that this will really encourage them to keep enduring, keep persevering, whatever tribulation they may be called to face. If there's someone here today that has never put their faith in Jesus, I pray that as a result of seeing this vision, seeing this glimpse of who Jesus is, that they too would just fall 
before him and say, I repent of my sin and I turn by faith to Jesus. I want him to be my king. I want him to be my Lord. I want him to be my savior. I pray that they would behold the king of kings today for the first time by faith. Spirit of God, move us now to whatever it is that you're calling us specifically to do, conversations to have, a witness to give, whatever it may be, move us to obedience now in Jesus' name. Amen.